Okay, let me get something straight. The fact that I have you in my living room is meaningless. I'm not betraying anything. You're a tree. Flora, a plant, a non-sentient being, that's all. I, mean, I know, there are people who like to endow you with religious significance, but even at that, you're really more of a, a cultural symbol, like uh, Easter Bunny, Uncle Sam, Tony the Tiger. Welcome to the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Lee. And my name is Charles. And I wanted to say right off the bat that we've gotten a lot of write-ins, people that are emailing us or writing into our Facebook page. And we want to say thank you so much for doing that. We read all of them and we really appreciate you guys doing it. But we've also gotten a lot of corrections through these uh, write-ins. That's correct. Um, it's, I, I mean, I have to admit, I don't check the Facebook as often as I should. Uh, we're always checking that Gmail. So if you'd like to write in, you can write us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, but so we have a lot of corrections over the past episodes that we've we've missed because I haven't been checking the Facebook. But let's just go into it now, I guess. Yeah, let's roll out the list of how many ways we're wrong. <laughs> Mark Davis writes us about our past episode, The Body in Question. That was episode six of this season. I believe somewhere in there I pronounce uh, the title of a song incorrectly. I say La Donna e Mobile. Actually, the pronunciation is La Donna e Mobile. And uh, I think that's the song that's playing when Chris is discovering the body, the body in question. Yeah, it's the gondola song that everyone knows <laughs> yeah. when you go to Italy. I also think that I got the name of the singer wrong. Uh, the name of the singer should have been Raphael. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, <laughs> I'm doing my us. very best. <laughs> Uh, Raphael Maratti, he okay. is the original singer for the premiere of that song. And the story goes was that the composer told Raphael not to practice the song out in public because he knew it would be incredibly catchy and he wanted the people's first time to listen to it would be at the opera house. So he had to practice in presumably like a private place setting. where nobody else. Yeah, like yeah. A private setting where no one was listening. I think that one was my fault because you were you were telling the story and you were like, wait, what was that singer's name? Like a really famous singer. And I was like, oh, Pavarotti. And so we, you know, but obviously uh, Mark points out that Pavarotti wasn't even born at the time of that uh, <laughs> no, this pr- premiere. Is, this, is, uh, this is a podcast where we are co-host and we are equal. I will take equal responsibility for that mistake. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it was kind of like a perfect storm of both of our fault. I do that a lot, though. Uh, I don't know if you do that. Or like if I want to continue a conversation or a dialogue, if someone says something and it sounds somewhat true to me, I'll be like, yeah, it's that. And then like continue on. Like if they'd be like, well, you uh, got to keep the momentum up. I feel like we do that yeah. a lot on this podcast. It's just like, yeah, I believe you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I do that in real life, too, uh, where someone would be talking about something like I don't know. Like they get to throw something outlandish as long as like it gets them to quiet down and I can keep going forward. Like it's like they go talk to talk and then I'm like, all right, let me talk now. So Charles, you're just <laughs> waiting to talk. That's, <laughs> that's kind of rude. Uh, yes, I would not deny that. Incredibly rude. <laughs> no, this is, uh, I think podcasting with you is, uh, is pretty great. So oh, thank you so much. I don't see that. Uh, what is the next correction? Um, okay. So not a correction, but JC writes into the email, Um, He actually had a lot to say about some episodes that we haven't gotten to. So I shared you this email, Charles, but I sort of excised the parts where JC talks about some future episodes. Uh, So we'll definitely be returning to his thoughts when we get there. Uh, But no spoilers as of now. However, in that email, he did also mention a fun little factoid about Jules at Joel, the fifth episode in this season. 
Apparently, it was originally slated to be the season finale of season two. That would have been episode eight. Remember, we were so confused about why does season two have seven episodes and season one has eight? We just, I feel like we asked ourselves that question numerous times when we were recording season two. Yeah. So you're saying that it was supposed to have ended on that, but instead it ended on the next episode? Yeah. Well, it ended on the previous, it ended on um, Slow Dance instead of uh, oh, Jules at okay. So it would have yeah, ended, I guess. That's kind of strange, though, because it would have ended on sort of a Halloween episode, but I guess they, or maybe they, maybe whenever they retooled the episode in season three, they made it more Halloween focused. Because uh, JC also writes that the Chris and Frank subplot, that was like the Mad Bomber subplot, was added to that episode because they cut out the Hauling subplot, which we actually forgot to go into. There's this huge hauling subplot in the bonus features. It's like a 12 minute, you know, it's 12 minutes of unused footage uh, where hauling goes to New York to try to pay off a debt. I think I told you to watch this, Charles. And then I was like, actually, you know, we'll get to it eventually, but it's not that exciting. I can understand why they cut it. Yeah. I remember you sending me the text messages, like the sequence of text messages where I think I was asleep when you were sending them to me. So you were like, oh my God, there's like a 12 minute subplot. Oh man, it involves hauling we should watch this and discuss it in a pod. Yeah. And then like after a little bit, like a pause, it's like, all right, never mind. Never mind. Let's not discuss it. It's okay. We, we can go over it. It was like eight separate you just messages. woke up to like, um, <laughs> yeah, I saw your path of thought. Interesting fact. Uh, the actor who plays Ranger Burns is in that hauling subplot. He's, uh, sort of like Hollings plane partner, you know, like the person that you sit next to on the plane. Mm-hmm. So he was cut from that subplot, but the actor does appear in the episode Jules at Joel at the very end. It's the same. It's like the Ranger Burns actor. He's one of the uh, hunters, I think, that finds Joel when he's like knocked out. So it was Ranger Burns or it was just the same actor? Just the actor. Yeah, my bad. But uh, I remember we we really liked that actor. And I think uh, that's in what episode is that? It's uh, Aurora Borealis, I believe, because that's the episode with... Uh, Adam. Yeah, that's the episode. I am surprised that they would just use the same actor, but not the same character. Right. I, that, I remember when we were recording for that episode, we were hoping to get more Ranger Burns in the future. And we do, but it's not the same character. It's just uh, the same actor. But uh, he's he's a really, really fun actor to watch. So I'm glad he, you know, I'm sad that he was cut from the hauling subplot, but I'm glad that they brought him back in the ending of that episode. What was the subplot though? For hauling going to New York. Yeah, so the the hauling subplot, I imagine it was to be used to intercut with whatever was happening with Jules and Joel in the in the other parts of the episode. But basically it starts with hauling waking up, sort of like waking up from a nightmare or something, and announcing that he has to go to New York. He owes someone a debt. Uh, we follow him on the plane, walking around the streets of New York, and finally he meets with this, um, I guess, old friend who is now sort of this business mogul of sorts. They go out to a fancy dinner. Hauling finally pays him the debt. He hands him an envelope and um, his friend, who he is indebted to, empties out the envelope and it's something like 10 cents or 15 cents. And Hauling takes it very seriously, but so does his friend. He's like, no, you actually owe me 18 cents. And they get into this whole fight about it, but I don't know. It was just a really long, drawn-out process. None of the scenes were really that interesting, and that sort of anticlimax of an ending was pretty boring. So that was just a gag all for that one joke? That's what it felt like, really. Yeah, that's a good reason that it got cut then. I I can't imagine that being, like, why? Like, I'm just trying to understand, (laughs) like, why was that even a plot line? Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't know who's to blame for that, but um, 
But if you are a, um, a deep dive Northern Exposure fan, definitely check it out. It's something that's not featured in any of the episodes, um, but you get to see some more. You get to see, you know, the actor Ranger Burns, lots of um, hauling interaction. So check it out. So Jewels at Joel is a Halloween episode, and I'm really nutty about holiday episodes. <laughs> I love them. And it looks like we have another one coming up right now, Soulmates. That's right. This episode today that we're talking about, you just said the title, Soulmates. That's Seoul as in South Korea. Episode 10 of season three of the television series Northern Exposure. This is the Christmas episode. But I guess before we get too far into this episode, let, let's back up a little bit. What are we talking about, Charles? Yeah, so we are talking about the CBS 1990s television series, Northern Exposure. And we are the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we overanalyze every single episode of Northern Exposure. Yeah, and I've seen the show uh, a couple times, quite a few times. And Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. Yeah, we've gotten quite good at this pitch now. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should like mix it up a little bit. I guess introducing the pitch like ten minutes into the episode is a is something new. I don't know if that's good or bad. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we need to come up with like a way where every single time we introduce the pitch, it has to be done in a completely new manner. (laughs) Yes, I like that. Yeah, we can really get outside the box. I don't know. Yeah. Mark my words, maybe we'll do it, but I, I really like it. Because I think this is where people hit the 15-second forward button when they're listening <laughs> yeah. to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, so that's oh, kind of encouraging, too, because even if it's something stupid, then we just can't always believe that they're just going to skip it. <laughs> if we, oh, that's true. It gives us so much freedom. <laughs> um, okay, so sorry, we're talking about the Christmas episode. But it's interesting because Sicily sort of celebrates Christmas in its own way with lots of like raven symbology and uh yeah i mean there's a lot there's a lot happening in this episode yeah there seems to be three different sects of holiday cheer going on over here so we have a conflict between joel and judaism we have the conflict between returning back to a traditional like catholic pagan, mass is yeah that, like oh yeah the, like the pagan like uh you're talking about like the raven yeah, like the pagan okay. uh, holidays of the pagan, m- following along with Native Americans and the Catholic traditional Christmas right, with Shelley. And uh, yeah, so you're you're touching on Joel. Joel's struggle with Judaism, meaning like he wants to appreciate Christmas, but he believes that Judaism is kind of stepping in the way of that. Maybe. Yeah, he feels like it's his identity, and not following with it is a betrayal to not only himself but to his like his ancestors. Yeah. And we'll get into that. He's He's got a lot of stuff, I guess, to figure out or think about. But I forgot to bring this up at the front. This episode won an Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Writing in a Drama Series. Really? This is, I think, uh, one of the only or one of the few episodes that won uh, for writing. I know the show's won for Best Drama, and this here is Best Writing in a Drama. And it's funny because the wording is outstanding individual achievement, but the award went to two writers, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. It's <laughs> funny to hear individual, but I, yeah, I wonder what that even means. Individual achievement. Maybe it's uh, referring to sort of the opposite of like a writer's room. Like maybe some shows are more like writer's rooms, but I don't know. Is I don't know exactly how Northern Exposure went. I mean, this obviously yeah. was written by, some episodes are written by one person. Some are written by two but there's still a writer's room for every television mm-hmm. series. There's still a number of people contributing it. The people that made the bones of the script, like you said earlier, Diane and Andrew, I believe were the names. Mm-hmm. 
they get the main credits, but they still had help from other people. Traditionally, yeah. that's how most television series go. I'd be very surprised to find out if they literally carried this from <laughs> Genesis to paper, like right know. there. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I was just reading the Northern Exposure book the other day. And uh, in an interview with the show's creators, Joshua Brand, John Falsey, they said that they read every script that was written in the show. So they definitely were like around, aware of what was going on. That doesn't exactly say that they were part of the writing, but, you know, they, they've seen everything and they're kind of guiding it. So in that sense, I can definitely confirm that it's a writer's room in that sense, I guess. Well, I think that it actually deserves the Emmy. I thought this yeah. was a pretty nice episode. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a pretty good episode, too. I, I feel like this episode was also nominated for a couple other Emmys. Let me see. So this episode, Soulmates, also got nominated for another Emmy, Outstanding Individual Achievement in Directing in a Drama Series, for Mr. Jack Bender. Okay, so this episode had two nominations, one win. And actually, I wanted to bring up that the last episode we did, Get Real, Cynthia Geary, who plays Shelley, she was nominated for an Emmy for that last episode. Not the hmm. not the most impressive uh, Emmy performance, but I think that is one of the best Shelley scenes we've seen in this series so far, or this season at least. I agree. I think it's one of the better Shelley scenes that we've seen all throughout the three seasons of Northern Exposure that I've seen. But I don't think that you're still against. She would have won the <laughs> Emmy. Yeah, the critics were very much fans of the show. So I mean, the Emmys, I guess, love to nominate and uh, award the show as much as possible. It seems. And I think actually another quick correction, I think we may have mentioned that Valerie Mahaffey won an Emmy for her appearance in the season premiere, The Bumpy Road to Love, though I'm seeing that she actually won it for another episode. Yeah, Lost and Found, which we have not seen yet, but that's good news. Not good that we messed up. I mean, good that like we're going to see her in the future. Yeah, I'm happy about that. I'm a big fan of her. <laughs> she's coming back, and according to the Emmys, she's going to be even better than in the season premiere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's going to be giving her best performance. Okay, so let's stick back to this episode. Soulmates, it was also one of the episodes chosen to be released on Laserdisc. So, you know, the creators and the studio felt that this was obviously one of their strongest works. So they released it for home video as well. So you could just purchase this individual episode? So I actually, that's a good question. I don't know if they came in like a set or anything, but I think I want to say there's only, let's see, six episodes that were released on VHS so according to Moose Chick, there were 11 episodes that were released on video, you know, VHS and Laserdisc before the DVDs came out. And the episodes that we've seen so far that were available for home video were the pilot, Aurora Borealis, Spring Break, which I actually own on VHS, The Body in Question, and Soulmates. More to come, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. That must have been such a crazy time to have lived in, <laughs> if only because... Can you imagine going to someone's house and being like, what do you have to watch? And like, oh, I got Northern Exposure. Like, oh, the whole series? Like, no, no, no. The one, just this one yeah. episode. <laughs> and it's not even the first one. It's going to be a random episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I guess we'll watch that. Yeah, like, I was just imagining, you know, like the age of today is like the age of streaming and, you know, like Breaking Bad or something. But imagine just having one episode of Breaking Bad out of context. It's kind of like <laughs> that show is so um, serial, you know. This show is a little more episodic, but but still, I guess you could jump into it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess the I guess the teens were doing like 
Northern Exposure, Season 3, Episode 7, and Chill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, imagine watching the same episode again and again. We should pick an episode and watch it like... No. <laughs> I was going to say... No, wait, are like are you proposing times. that we watch an episode multiple times through? <laughs> There's so many episodes. There was a podcast where somebody kept rewatching the same movie over and over and over again. Yeah, it was uh, Grown Ups 2, I think. It was Grown Ups 2. That was it. <laughs> they watched it. Like, I remember I heard so about much. that and I was like, that actually I think is what inspired me to make a podcast because I was like, wow, you could make a podcast about anything and it would be amazing. <laughs> I th- I think so. Hey, okay, wait, let's focus on this episode. I feel like we're going to be 30 minutes in without even talking. <laughs> I got, we kind of started kicking it off. So the Raven decorations are going up. Chris has got his little introductory, you know, radio sermon. He tells us that Marilyn was just cast in the Raven pageant as Princess Susitna. I think I, I think I spelled that right unless my autocorrect changed it on me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she gets cast in it, and I think that it begins with Joel marveling over Christmas trees, right? Right. Um, oh, wait, actually, before that, we get a little bit of the Maurice plot line, but let's, um, chronology doesn't matter that much. Let's, let's focus on Joel real fast. Yeah, what I thought was going to be the A plot turned out to be mostly just a side plot. Yeah, more of sort of like a thematic thing, less plotty, more of just uh, a, a big idea, sort of exploring what is the symbol of Christmas and can Christmas be for only Christians? Or I really love actually what Chris says. I think it's towards the end of the episode where his basically his monologue is basically saying Christmas is for everybody, you know? Yeah. I like that. Like the meaning, the meaning of Christmas is that uh, you can create your own meaning with it. Like it's free for everyone to interpret in whatever manner they want, which is really nice. I like that a lot too. He says, Christmas reveals itself to us each in a personal way, be it secular or sacred. Whatever Christmas is, and it's many things to many people, we all own a piece of it. You know, I, lo- I love that sentiment. And uh, actually, we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, Charles. In that scene, he's just talking about, uh, well, he was reading from a book, uh, which we were trying to find, we we're trying to figure out what, what is this book? Yeah, I couldn't really see the author or even the title that much, but apparently it's The Holy Beast. That's what I could read from uh, what is shown on screen. It it kind of clearly looks like it says The Holy Beast and something about Christmas carols or, or something like that. And we were looking online trying to find this and I couldn't find anything for The Holy Beast. But whenever I typed in the quote that Chris is reading from this book, it brings up The Friendly Beasts which is a traditional Christmas song, apparently. I'd never heard of this before. I haven't heard of that either, but that's got to be what it's referencing, right? Uh, Most certainly, definitely. And this is the story, uh, Chris says something like, there's an old myth that says all animals at midnight on Christmas fall to their knees and speak, praising the newborn Jesus. And so it's a pretty little story. Chris remembers when he was just a boy, I think six or seven, he stayed up till midnight just to see what would happen. And he admits on air that, yes, his dog actually spoke. He didn't really uh, remember what it said, but that was sort of a revelatory experience for him. I took it to mean like symbolically spoke. I, I don't know. I've been reading things, I feel like, in the in the past couple episodes, like like Sicily is not afraid of like admitting that magic exists and sort of no one bats an eye at that, you know? Uh, more of like a magical realism sort of vibe to it, but, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was more of a metaphor. 
What did you kind of read it as? Yeah, I thought it was going to be like a metaphor type of thing that it spoke to him. Like he could finally understand what the dog wanted through its life. Like you can kind of see through the dog's eyes. Uh, yeah, I guess either way, that's pretty advanced uh, for, for like a six or seven year old. So in a way, let's go back to Joel and his Christmas trees. Right. So he sees Ed and Dave actually unloading a big old Christmas tree. Who's it for? Is this one for the brick or is this one for Dave himself? I think it doesn't actually say, I okay. mean, I could be wrong, but I think it was, they kind of just dragged the Christmas tree and then the scene ends. They're bringing it into the brick. So it's either for the brick. I mean, whatever. I'm sure someone listening to this podcast knows that <laughs> what it's for, but anyway, yeah, specifically who it is for. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the thing I wanted to talk about was Joel is very fascinated, obviously with the Christmas tree you know, we kind of learned that he's, he's sort of admired Christmas from afar, but as we mentioned earlier, he doesn't really know how to get past Judaism in order to accept Christmas <laughs> as his own holiday. But uh, one of the things he brings up in this scene is Douglas fir or spruce. So Joel prefers a spruce over to Douglas fir, but I was looking into Christmas trees just now, and it turns out that I don't know if you knew this. I had no idea, but Christmas trees are usually an evergreen conifer, and it can even have pine with the variety of it. But I also found this out. This is the origin of Christmas trees. Hmm. So the earliest legend of the origin of the Christmas trees date back to 723. And it's with St. Boniface hmm. when he was trying to evangelize Germany. So basically St. Boniface stumbled upon a pagan gathering where a group of people were dancing under an oak tree and they were going to sacrifice a baby in the name of Thor. Boniface took offense and then he took an ax and <laughs> called on the name of Jesus. And in one <laughs> swipe, he took down the entire oak tree to the crowd's <laughs> astonishment. But behind that tree was a baby fir. And Boniface said, let this tree be the symbol of the true God. Its leaves are evergreen and will not die. And that is kind of the earliest religious tone that Christmas trees had. That's kind of the inverse of like what Christmas has evolved into because now we just like slaughter, you know, millions of Christmas trees. <laughs> you said it was a Douglas fir in the story? Yeah, it was a baby fir in the story. <laughs> or a baby fir tree, yeah. Um, so I did also do a little bit of research because... Yeah, Charles, I mean, you're not Christian. I'm not Christian. Did you ever, did you grow up with a Christmas tree in your house or did you ever celebrate Christmas or? Yeah, I celebrated Christmas because my parents wanted to adopt into American. Like assimilation. Mannerisms. Yeah, exactly. So they knew that Christmas existed in America and they were like, all right, well, we're going to get a Christmas tree. We're going to put presents underneath it. Though we had an artificial tree. It was definitely not real. Mm -hmm. And we put it up into the attic every single January 1st, I want to say. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we laid it out a little bit past Christmas. Yeah, that was my introduction into Christmas. They never did tell me about Santa, though. That was something that I heard about when I was a child in school, and immediately I knew that was nonsense because I heard about it at a later age. Like, I didn't hear about it as, yeah, a, as a very kid. young child. No, I heard about it when I was like eight, like the legend of Santa. And I was like, well, that's impossible. That's just like a fairy tale. Like, that, I, I never believed in it. But what about you? So I'm Jewish, but uh, my cousins and the rest of my family, most of them celebrated Christmas. So I would, you know, be part of the Christmas. I, I would get Christmas presents for my relatives. I do remember whenever, you know, the grownups told us that Santa wasn't real. And, you know, again, I don't, traditionally celebrate Christmas, but I was pretty blown back by 
uh, you know, that, that sort of earth shattering truth. But, but anyway, yeah. Wait, so you believed in Santa initially? Like you earnestly believed that there was a man that could I mean, I wouldn't say earnestly, like it wasn't something I was like really devoted to, you know, it was just sort of like something that indirectly affected me and I got presents, you know, it was great. But so I never really thought about Santa a whole lot because I, I wasn't Christian, but still, uh, whenever I learned that he wasn't real, it still, you know, was kind of a surprise. <laughs> Wait, that's supposed to be like one of the benefits of being Jewish is that you get like a leg up on the Christian children. You're like, all right, well, we I know this is know fake. I got fake. this over you guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, so this was all just to say, you know, we, we are not super familiar with Christmas or the history. Uh, we're, I guess we're trying to make ourselves a little more familiar. You're, it seems you've been doing a little bit of research on uh, Christmas trees, Charles. And I did the same. So I was, I was wondering what the difference between a Douglas fir and a spruce was. Um, from what I can tell, spruce tree needles are sharply pointed, square, and easy to roll between your fingers, whereas fir needles are softer, flat, and they can't be rolled between your fingers. That's uh, all, that's the main difference that I could find online. Hmm. Does that matter a lot to the Christmas trees, what their needles are like? No, I don't think that that matters for the Christmas tree. That's just how you, um, how you can identify a Douglas fir and uh, a spruce, you know, being separate from each other. Oh, okay. That's really interesting that you brought that up because in the other plot line involving the raven... Uh, the yeah. pagan holiday. That one involves a pine needle. Oh, right. Yeah, it's pine, right? Yeah, it's pine. So it's which neither, also be. neither Douglas fir nor spruce. Yeah, but that can be a type of Christmas tree. Right. Huh. There's a connection to there. We'll get more into that later between the um, connections and the parallels between the two, but I didn't pick up on that until now. Interesting. I mean, we'll also, just talking about trees, uh, we learn in this scene that Dave is an animist. Have you ever, I'd never heard that term before. No, I didn't either. Do you know what an animist is? So an animist uh, or animism is the religious belief that objects, places, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. So animism perceives all things, animals, plants, rocks, rivers, weather systems, human handiwork, and perhaps even words as animated and alive. So I, I definitely heard of this idea and, I, you know, I probably know people who have this sort of belief, but I'd never heard of the term animist or animism. So another uh, little mm. vocabulary word. Yeah, that's a nice 35 ACT word. <laughs> Speaking of people's religious beliefs, turns out that Ruthann is perhaps agnostic theists. Well, yeah, she claims to be an atheist, but then what she says after that, uh, it doesn't really sound like atheism, right? No, she still believes that there is a higher power. It just doesn't take form from what she says. Yeah, and she, she refers to it with the pronoun she, you know, when normally people will refer to God and, and Christianity as a he, you know. Right. So I thought that that most closely resembled agnostic theism, but I'm not entirely too sure. My <laughs> knowledge on all of those branches theology of theology are sketchy at best. <laughs> yeah, I never had that teenage rebellious phase where I decided to go against Christianity and become an atheist. Like during your teenage years, I don't know if that happened to you a lot. Uh, if you knew a lot of people like that, but I knew quite a few. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were like, no, <laughs> no, like the church is a lie. Like to God's totally not real. And you're Santa's like a hardcore atheist at like 16. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Ruthann, I don't know when she de determined this, if it was in her teenage years or not, but uh, she's telling this all to Joel. And really, I really love the quote that Joel has here. He says, I always admired atheists. I think it takes a lot of faith. 
And I thought that was a quote that was like cribbed from someone else. But when I tried to search it online, it's um, attributed to Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, like the writers of this episode. Does that, hmm. so, doesn't that sound like a familiar joke? Or maybe I've just seen this episode quite a few times and always remember that line. Huh. That sounds like a joke, though. It could be like a pedestrian joke, <laughs> like a joke that's not attributed to anybody, but it exists in right. the hemisphere. Kind of like, why did the chicken cross the road? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a pretty self-written joke, but uh, it just sounds so good. And it, it's, I don't know, I really, I really it's kind of funny, you know? So Joel, after some convincing from Ed, decides to go pick up his own Christmas tree. And I know we haven't talked about this character yet. He's newly introduced in this episode, but I thought it was really odd that it was Ed and Maurice's grandson hauling in the Christmas tree into Joel's place. I I don't know why he's there. Yeah, it is interesting because he has a, he has a lot to do in this episode with Maurice and with his family. But I think this may be one of the only scenes we see him with Ed. I mean, apart from just their, they're wearing the same jacket, that leather jacket, and they're young. Apart from that, I don't really know why they're hanging out. I guess it's yeah, a small town and, and, <laughs> and yeah. Just a small town. So they're like, I guess I'll help this random guy move a Christmas tree into another random guy's house. It almost seems like they were supposed to be more of that, like more of their hanging out. It wasn't in the deleted scenes or anything, but yeah, it, it was interesting that this character is, uh, is part of this scene. I'm not complaining, but just I wish he had more to do with Ed later on. So it's after this, whenever Ed and Bong Cho, is that how you say his name? Yeah, Bong Cho. So they bring the Christmas tree into Joel's house and they're leaving really quickly. Obviously, they've got to go do some hanging out that we never get to see, uh, but they're leaving quickly. They want to go hang out and do something. And Joel's like, wait, what am I supposed to do? And they tell him he's got to decorate it. And so they kind of leave him alone with it. And then that's when we get sort of the little soundbite that we played at the beginning of this episode when Joel's really just trying to analyze this tree. Yeah, I actually really like that scene. It's not particularly long, like it's perhaps mm, 30 seconds long, I want to say, but the camera is panning up to the tree. Yeah. And I think I'm starting to pick up a little bit of film theory from you. (laughs) So does that mean that like the tree is in a position of power? Yeah, like Joel is kind of subject to the tree. He's staring up at its uh, grand mystery, perhaps. He's trying to analyze it and he can't understand it. It has some sort of power over him that he doesn't understand. Yeah, there we go. You're a tree. Flora, a plant, a non-sentient being. That's all. Yeah, and I really like what he has to say about it because there's going to be a conflict between Joel and his Judaism and what the Christmas tree represents, which to Joel, he thinks it's more of just a symbol of a holiday and not necessarily of Christianity. So he's trying to reason within himself that if he allows this tree into his living room, then he's simply just partaking in like American pastimes yeah. and not necessarily Christian beliefs. Right. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's in a way trying to justify it to himself, but yeah, I mean, he makes some good points. So also in this scene, I think it ends with Maggie sort of performing an inverse house call. She, as we learned at the beginning of this episode, she's super clumsy around this time of year for whatever reason. That's just what the writers wanted to happen. And uh, she has, I don't know, maybe sprained her ankle or something. So she kind of busts into Joel's house and they have a, a bit of a little interaction. Yeah. So Mackie is incredibly 
nervous about returning home or maybe not even nervous is the right word. She is reluctant. She like dreads to return it. Home. Right. Yeah. She dreads it because she knows that when she goes home, they're going to nag her about her love life. And yeah. when is she going to give them grandchildren and she's going to have no place to hide like nowhere yeah. to go away from these conversations. And she's expecting a ticket any day now. Apparently they mail her a ticket. Yeah. That's a tradition. They'll mail her a, plane ticket to fly back home and celebrate Christmas. And it, it seems like she's, you know, this is like, it's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. She, she just really doesn't want to do it again. We also learned that she has a brother in, in what she's relating. Yeah. Apparently a very conceited brother. <laughs> yeah. That was never brought up in the past episodes. And in the episode with uh, her father, I believe it was all his vanity in the second season. They don't really comment about uh, her brother there either. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That just struck me as a surprise for this episode. Uh, I know that she says that her brother is really enamored with his swimming trophy. (laughs) So very curiously, she took to the air and the brother took to the sea. Took to the sea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Something about Maggie, because she always says she's like daddy's little girl, like her dad treats her that way. It made me think she was an only child. Maybe that's what it was. But That's uh, what I thought too. I thought she was an only child. But hey, yeah, I mean, family interaction, it can be really hard, you know, around the holiday season. There's all, you know, it just seems like, especially since Maggie lives so far away, there's just such a huge disconnect. And so I don't know. I I can see where she's coming from. That's one of the benefits for having all your relatives be a couple thousand miles away from you. (laughs) I mean, yeah, benefits so you don't have to worry about such such an awkward interaction, I guess. But something tells me if they live closer, maybe it would be a little different. But who knows? Maybe it would be exactly the same. (laughs) I did want to also say we kind of, when we were talking about Ruth Ann, I forgot to mention that the reason Joel is talking to her about atheism in the first place is he he's going to her store to pick up some ornaments and some Christmas lights. And there's all these boxes of um, Raven-themed ornaments and lights, and they just look really cool. I mean, this is obviously something that was fabricated by the art department. Uh, so props to them for creating all these uh, wonderful merchandise for the Raven Festival. Is this the Raven Festival? What is it called, the holiday? I didn't pick up the name on it, but I think that's fair to assume that we can call it casually as the Raven Festival <laughs> or the Raven Holiday Festivities. The ceremony but there of the is, Raven. Yeah, yeah. There was a particular shot that I enjoyed, which is, I believe it's coming back from commercial break, and okay. it's the Raven's... Uh, statues i guess okay like the totem or something yeah and they have christmas lights strung along their necks and their bodies Ah. and it's snowing and it's a very unusual shot interesting in my opinion and i think i know what you're talking about yeah yeah and i thought i was like huh that's really neat that they designed that shot like because they had to have to build that and yeah they had to build those ravens uh yeah speaking of the snow in this episode is that real snow I mean, we're in, I live in the, we live in the South, you know, like I haven't seen a whole lot of snow. So I've, I've seen more movie snow than real snow. Uh, I'm mm, kind of looked real on my, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, they're shooting in, in my view of it. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're shooting in Washington. So it's very likely, especially if they're shooting in the fall, in the winter that they'll find some snow to shoot. Did you know that old movies used asbestos as their snow? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'd heard um, coconut shavings was one way to do it, but... Yeah, that is. In fact, there's even a scene in Studio 60 yeah. where 
coconut Cal shavings, needs right? to go make fake snow and he has an epiphany. He's like, coconuts. Oh yeah, we can use coconut shavings. And I'm like, oh great. We can use the ones outside. There's like, uh, ours in LA. No, they don't do anything. They're like, what? Mm, all right. You mean the palm trees? They don't, they don't, yeah. the palm trees in LA do not uh, produce coconuts. <laughs> yeah. So just finishing up this little Ruth Ann scene, she makes uh, raven bread, which I guess is a tradition of this holiday. I was wondering, I, I mean, obviously can't really, can't really tell what Joel is eating. She offers it to Joel, um, but he says mm, pumpernickel. So I guess is Raven bread its own thing? Is it just pumpernickel? It's definitely its own thing. I tried Googling <laughs> it and there's a company called Raven bread, but it's not, I'm but assuming it was established, <laughs> you know, before Northern Exposure came out. Yeah. Joel's also a big fan of the Christmas songs that are playing throughout the radio. Right? Yeah. Uh, he even plays a song for Maggie later uh, when she comes to his house I, I think he's called her this time. He summoned her to help him decorate and light his Christmas tree. And as soon as she walks in, he says, oh, oh wait, wait, hold on. He presses play on the boom box and it's White Christmas by the Drifters. Speaking of Christmas songs on our radio, do you know that Joel lives in a world where he would not have heard All I Want for Christmas is You? Oh, it hasn't hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. That it came out in 1994. It said, Joel, if you can even stop to think about it, has never heard that song. I mean, will he have ever heard it? He, he, yeah, this show ran between 90 and 95. So, so yeah, later, maybe if there's a future Christmas episode, uh, but wow. Yeah. I think it's so crazy that a new Christmas song came out in the 20th century. Like yeah. it just became part of the famous Christmas songs. There hasn't really been a, a a famous Christmas song to top that one. I think that's kind of the most recent uh, Christmas hit. Yeah, they need to get more into that market. Like it can't be that tough to crack, in my opinion. Like it just has to be catchy. It's got to have a family friendly oriented message. I mean, I think people are still making Christmas music, uh, Christmas albums, and and such. But uh, yeah, I guess there hasn't been such a chart topper. Maybe that has something to do with the way music performs, uh, you know, today with streaming and like Spotify and such, and it's less about album sales. So maybe sort of the metrics are a little different now. I don't don't know. Mm. They need the Judaism equivalent of that. What do you mean? Like all I want for Christmas is you is obviously it's Christmas. They need the one Uh, for Hanukkah. There's not, yeah, there's definitely not as many great Hanukkah songs as there are Christmas songs. I mean, there's a lot of Hanukkah songs, sure, but I've never really broken into top of the pop culture. <laughs> so do you want to talk about this scene with, uh, it's Maggie and Joel. They're decorating the tree. It's really, I, I love the scene because this comes after Maggie learns that she's not going to be going home uh, to visit her family. And, you know, from what we've seen from Maggie, we expect her to be relieved, but she's actually quite bummed about it, right? Yeah, she's disappointed that she's not going back. And I'm guessing that it's a love-hate relationship that she has with her family. Yeah, that, I mean, that's got to be it, I guess. And she she almost like doesn't want to admit it uh, whenever she gets the letter. she <laughs> It's kind of a funny scene, but she like acts relieved, happy, and surprised. Uh, but she only admits to feeling that because that's what Joel is feeding her. And who else is in that scene? Is it Holling or Ruth Ann? Yeah, it's Ruth Ann. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense because she's picking up the letter from sort of the, I guess Ruth Ann's store is also the post office as well. <laughs> it's the, the movie every store. store. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so she's actually quite bummed even though she expresses happiness and relief and surprise. 
in the scene when Joel is very eager, very excited to decorate his tree, he's called Maggie over for this purpose. You could tell she's like, she's really like, she's, she's pissed off, you know, (laughs) she doesn't want to be there. But even when she criticizes Joel is like, no, you're supposed to put the lights on before you put the ornaments on. He's like, Oh, you see that? That's why I want you here. Exactly. Like, thank you for telling me this. <laughs> he's like, he's having such a good time. And I really like seeing that. Yeah. And earlier he was also asking Ed and Bong to stay behind to help him decorate the tree. It seems right. like that he likes Christmas because of the social aspects that it brings about people. True. Like it makes people want to be together, a community of sorts. So he's trying to establish that with Maggie. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because he maybe he is a firm, a firm Jew, you know, but he maybe feels guilty that he can't be part of you know, the Christmas cheer and the Christmas spirit, which is something that Maurice talks about in this episode. He, I think in the very beginning, he talks about feeling like an outsider just because he doesn't have a wife and a kid. I mean, in that moment, he says Christmas uh, is a holiday that makes people like me feel like outsiders. And maybe that's what Joel is uh, kind of feeling, but doesn't realize it. Yeah, that's a really good analysis right there. It's funny that way because Christmas should be the last holiday where people feel alienated or lonely yeah, or, or like left us out. versus them. Yeah. Right. Very left out. Christmas should be all inclusive, or at least that should be the meaning of it. Or one of the meanings that you can extrapolate from Christmas is the yeah. togetherness. Well, that's what this episode is trying to say. I think, especially with Chris's uh, monologue towards the end. And, and I get behind that message as well. But anyway, the resolution of this scene between Joel and Maggie as they're decorating it's, it's really fun to watch Joel, but honestly, you can tell Maggie is very sad. She actually leaves the scene, uh, even when Joel is sort of encouraging her, she leaves him alone and he's just kind of staring there at his ornaments. It's a sad image, but you just got to think about how, how sad Maggie's feeling in this moment. It's, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though it's fine because at the end she does get the Christmas tree and she gets a little bit of a, a moment of not peace, but kind of maybe like that feeling that, you know, she misses her family, but she has, she also has like another family network in Sicily. Yeah. Yeah. Like a moment of contentment whenever Joel brings her out to go look at the Christmas tree that they decorated. And I thought that was a really sweet scene because he makes her cover her eyes and (laughs) makes her come outside. And then he just gives her a gift that you can't wrap in any way. Yeah, That's true. Speaking of that gift, I was trying to like, so he decorated the tree, then put it in his truck and then brought it to her house, right? It wasn't like he brought it to her house, stood outside for hours decorating it and then knocked on her door, right? Mm, That makes more sense. (laughs) That that makes much more sense. Which one makes more sense? (laughs) That he would have done it beforehand and then brought the tree and just planted the tree down. (laughs) Did you also think he maybe, yeah, I thought he maybe would have done that, but it's like, that's kind of creepy and, and... uh, but um, no, yeah, I love this scene too. It, it reminded me so much of Brain's know-how and native intelligence, the second episode of the series, where he sort of gives her an informal house call and he's, you know, talking to her on her front porch. And oh my God, that, that scene in particular, you could just tell the electricity, like the chemistry between the two actors is so strong. And, and you see some of that here too. You know, they, they really have some great chemistry. It's funny though, that this scene starts, 
you know, the, the last scene ends with Maggie leaving. She's like, I, you know, I just want to, I have things to do. Like, I'll just go do my taxes. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's Christmas Eve, O'Connell. You can't do your taxes on Christmas Eve. And when he goes to give her the, the Christmas tree as a gift, she's, it looks like she's doing her taxes. She has her glasses on and she's got like some forms in her hand. Hey, she is committed. She <laughs> is, she is a woman of her word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's, she's anti-Christmas big time. But yeah, so it's, as we said, it's a beautiful scene. It looks great because the tree is quite well decorated and beautifully lit up with Christmas lights. And uh, Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I thought that was actually one thing that I noted that I actually, like, I think I literally wrote it down. I was like, this is a very pretty Christmas tree. Like, this yeah. could be, even by today's standard, it's like, this is fantastic. High production value there, <laughs> the Christmas tree. <laughs> I thought that this plot line was going to be the A plot line. Like right. when I heard okay. about it initially, I thought it was going to be a whole tackle uh, within Joel's internal development, how he would have to come to terms with his faith and Christmas. But it turns out that this is mostly a, I don't know, like a more of a thematic um, feeling. It's less of a plot. Yeah, exactly. I like it. I like it for what it is. Um, but no, I see, I can see how you might be um, starting to rev yourself up to go on this plot with Joel. And it, it doesn't really plot around too much. It, it's just kind of like focusing on these questions we ask ourselves. It fits nicely with the rest of the plots in the episode. Like it's a nice counterbalance. Uh, it, it sort of harmonizes with Chris's idea that, you know, Christmas belongs to all of us. You know, Joel is also sort of a window. We forgot to mention this. He's a window into the Raven myth. Do we want to start there? Yeah. I think that this plot line goes hand in hand with the Raven plot line more so than Maurice's plot line. Definitely, yeah. So the Raven plot line is that the town of Sicily has their own... Sort of like Christmas uh, winter holiday, I guess. Yeah, like their own festivities involving the Raven and... Joel's a little bit confused at that. Now he takes it in stride and he's like, well, this is, it's still neat that y'all are yeah. doing this. But he later asks Marilyn, what's up with all the ravens? A long time ago, the raven looked down from the sky and saw that the people of the world were living in darkness. The ball of light was kept hidden by a selfish old chief. So the raven turned himself into a spruce needle and floated on the river where the chief's daughter came for water. She drank the spruce needle. She became pregnant and gave birth to a boy, which was a raven in disguise. The baby cried and cried until the chief gave him the ball of light to play with. As soon as he had the light, the raven turned back into himself and carried the light into the sky. From then on, we no longer lived in darkness. Wow, that's a great story. Okay, all right, uh, correction. Is a spruce needle, not a pine needle. <laughs> yeah, we're going to beat you to the punch. It's, it's a spruce needle. We done messed up. <laughs> so if you've already written that email and haven't sent it, uh, here you go. Spruce needle, that's in the story that Marilyn tells Joel. Um, but yeah, what do you think about this myth? Uh, here's what's really crazy about it. I actually knew about that myth a long oh, time ago. And it wasn't so until this, this episode that I remembered it. Yeah. So when I was a child, one of my first books that I read was called Raven, A Trickster Tale from the Pacific Northwest. Whoa. And you might have had that book too. I'm not too sure. I think a lot of children had this book, but it was a children's book. And it was the same exact story because the story is a, a folktale. It's told often. But for some reason, my mother had gotten it for me and I was familiar with the tale. And it wasn't until Marilyn said it that it brought back memories of that. I I totally forgot that 
this was even a thing in my brain. Wow. I feel like I'd never heard this story before uh, until Northern Exposure, but maybe so. Um, as you say, it sounds like it's a common folklore, according to, you said the book has something to do with the Pacific Northwest? Yeah. The title? Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how the raven in the Pacific Northwest area is depicted as sometimes a benevolent being because many times in a lot of cultures, the Raven can only depict ill omens or death. Right. I think Chris mentions that he reads a line from, I want to say he reads a line from the Edgar Allan Poe poem, right? He's uh he's sort of talking about the negative connotation of the Raven in a lot of cultures. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's mostly because the Raven is a mediator animal between life and death. Like it's an omnivore. It can eat dead things. Yeah. So a lot of people look at it and they associate it with that matter. Kind of like the coyote. Interesting. Did you know that the Baltimore Ravens is actually named after that Edgar Allan Poe poem? Oh, it's, uh, how do you know that? Well, I was actually just doing some research on Ravens and it turns out that Edgar Allan Poe spent the early part of his career in Baltimore and is actually buried there. So in a fan contest, the people of Baltimore decided to name their football team, the Ravens after the poem. That's amazing. Very cool. Yeah. I would have, I guess that, you know, I don't know, I guess, are there a lot of Ravens, the animal in Baltimore? So I guess it makes sense that it's, uh, harking back to the poet. I want to say it's more toward the poet though, because I feel like ravens yeah. are ubiquitous throughout all of North America. <laughs> like it's not particularly found in Maryland. True. But I just think it's so funny that a sports team would right. take its <laughs> name from literature. from literature. No, that's cool. I'm sure there are other examples too, but yeah, not, I guess not typical fodder for uh, sports teams names. Well, so this myth, uh, the raven myth here, it has some similarities to Christianity and the Immaculate Conception. You know, it talks about what the princess who drinks the spruce needle and uh, becomes pregnant and has a baby. You know, not unlike baby Jesus, I guess. I don't know. So let's kind of break it down. So basically, the, the, the story that Marilyn tells Joel, it's basically the idea is the Holy One persists, you know, crying again and again and never giving up until the evil villain finally succumbs and relinquishes his power back to the Holy One, who uses it for the betterment of all. I'm trying to think if that's, you know, huh. it's kind of similar to Christianity in that, you know, Jesus sacrifices himself for the betterment of all, but there's a lot of uh, differences, I think. That's an interesting interpretation of the story. I actually didn't get that. The way that I had saw the story was that in order to get change from somebody else, you need to present yourself as one of them before mm. the change can come. Wow, so, yeah. Instead of like an us versus them type of situation, you need to make you a part of their community, make them realize that you're a being of value before they'll give up either whatever preconceived biases or notions that they have against you. Or in this case, they'll be able to help the rest of the world by giving up the light. No, that's definitely a, a key part that I left out of my analysis. It's the fact that the Holy One in the story disguises himself as one of the tribe, you know, as, as a, just a baby, human baby. He's not actually a raven until he finally does turn back into a raven. And no, what you just pointed out is indirect... Uh, relation to sort of the Maurice and Chris plotline, which I guess maybe we can go into there for a second. Yeah. Well, really quickly, I wanted to bring this out. Okay. This is something I thought was really interesting. So Christmas tree lights were a creation of Edward H. Johnson, who was an associate of Thomas Edison, and he popularized Christmas tree lights. But it turns out that before he did that, 
Christmas trees were decorated with candles. And the reason why is that it's supposed to symbolize Christ being the light of the world. Wait, so they used to be decorated with candles? Yeah. So back in the day, Christmas trees would be decorated with candles. And I thought the most important takeaway was that it was meant to symbolize that Christ was the light of the world, just like how, that's you know, in the story, the raven is trying to bring light to the world. That's such a fire hazard. <laughs> Those things are known for catching on fire, right? The Christmas trees. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, yeah, bringing the light to the world, that's another comparison. Uh, very nice. I guess I really want to kind of um, spin this into the Chris and Maurice plot line, but maybe we should table that for a second because we, we have to really kind of dig into the Maurice plot line. Like, where does it start? Yeah, so it turns out that Maurice just has an extended family from his time in Korea. Right, he said he was, I think, 16 at the time, but it turns out he fathered a child, They've come to K-Bear and they're waiting for him outside. It's this young man who we talked about, um, Bong Cho, the guy in the leather jacket, his father, Du Quan, and then also the grandmother of Bong Cho, Yongja. Is, that's her name, I think. Yeah. So she wants to bring her son to meet Maurice, the father. And they don't want anything other than just the company of Maurice. Right. And Maurice even warns them too. He says like, well, if you are here for something more than just my company, I have an army of lawyers uh, <laughs> that will absolutely bankrupt you. Like eat you for breakfast or something, he says. <laughs> so Maurice is, well, to put it quite frankly, really disappointed that he has a son at all. Yeah. Well, not I, that he has a son, but that his son is this person. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty outwardly um, expressing racism, right? <laughs> He's, oh, absolutely. It's, he's not saying anything else. He's saying... Hardcore racism. I don't like, love my son because the color of his skin. Yeah, he's dropping um, slurs, calling them Chinamen. And I think Chris even points out, he's like, I don't think he's... They're not from China. It's like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. They all look the same. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like, what? <laughs> there's a great joke by Mulaney where he says that Chinamen is the laziest slur. They just took two words and stuck them together. No work was done. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, in that scene when Maurice is sort of threatening the family, you know, with the lawyers. So basically Maurice misinterprets their visit as they want money and like child support, I guess, from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's clear they, they're very clear in, in trying to express that they just want to meet him and to know him. During that scene, there's the two shot with Duquan and Yongja. If you look closely enough, again, we get another one of those like uh, flags it's, uh, I think we described it in an episode before when Maggie goes to visit Joel. There's like a black flag, which is used to shape the light in the scene. This is this one's pretty clear in this episode. And actually you can see it. It's like bobbing up and down in the top right corner. So that's <laughs> a little gaff. If you want to go back and check that out, you can see part of the set in the frame. So after dinner, it looks like that they're camping with him or like they're staying with him. Yeah, they're staying at they're his house. They're bunking with him. That's what I'm looking for. They're bunking. <laughs> so Maurice takes the effort to cleaning Yang Cha's gown and he accidentally ruins it. And he says that he's going to pay for it. He says like, no, I understand this cost you a pretty penny. I'm going to pay you back for it. And I thought that was kind of odd because here's a man that is not willing to pay alimony for what yeah. is rightfully his child. He did the DNA test. Well, I don't know if he does DNA test. They did. But he, he does he something. Says, yeah. He does? He says like the test came back. Oh, okay. We don't see it on screen, but yeah. We know that it is his child biologically and he's not willing to support him. 
but he's willing to pay for the gown that he messed up. Yeah. So I, I think it's a very interesting scene because this comes right after, you know, like maybe a couple scenes before is when he's threatening them if they want to get any money from him, like he's not going to allow that. And, and now he's so eager to make things right with money. You know, he's using money to make things right. And this is sort of, you know, it, it shows he is responsible. He sees that he's responsible. He did it with his bare hands. Like he ruined this, uh, this gown. And so he wants to make right the situation, but exactly what you're saying is like, can you compare this to Duquan? And, and I can see this is what the, the writers are sort of setting up. It's like, how do we get Maurice to acknowledge, uh, and to accept some sort of change in his life? Cause you know, we can't just have him be the same note the whole episode. We just, we don't want to like keep him a racist. That's just kind of offensive, <laughs> but no, it is kind of startling that he is very eager to pay them money or, or pay young Ja for, for the gown, buy her another gown. But you know, he's totally not even thinking about Duquan, you know? Yeah. I think it's really interesting that Maurice wants to pay back what he ruined earlier with the gown, but he's not willing to accept them into his heart, which is something that doesn't cost money. Ah, That's what he's not accepting into it. Also, it's very strange that he wanted a son. He's always wanted one, but he just doesn't particularly want this son because there's too many cultural barriers between them. He finds that he just can't break down his preconceived notions of what he thinks people from Korea are, or their, you know, their traditions. Yeah. Well, you can tell in this scene, I mean, obviously he's trying, maybe he doesn't even realize it, but just like feeling that guilt and that responsibility for the gown is one way of like trying to get over these hurdles in his head. And also at the end of this scene, he's like trying really hard to remember Yong Cha. He, he says, I don't remember you. Like he's, I don't know. How did, would you, we're jumping ahead a little bit. What'd you think about that? Like last scene when he does remember Young Cha? I don't know. I almost, I I like that he has his whole sort of arc with Duquan, but I thought this was a very poignant scene that like he, it's almost tragic that he can't even remember this person and he really wants to. Uh, I'm talking about Young Cha. Right. That's really good that you brought that up because it completes the circle within there. So he can't remember her initially and he's trying desperately. And like you said, he wants to remember who she is, but it's not until the very end that he suddenly comes back to it as if to reflect in the subtext that, oh, you're, you're a person to me now. Like you are an individual with, you know, hopes and dreams and feelings and all that. It's almost as if like, I don't know, this may be tying into something that Chris says later in the episode, but it's almost as if he had sort of this caring human side to him when he was younger. Maybe he lost part of that when he grew up and he's rediscovering it. I don't know. That's kind of cheesy, but... I think that's one way to look into it. I think that can be an interpretation of that scene. But the reason I bring it up is I, I kind of felt weird by the scene. I, I know it makes story sense for him to, in the end, uh, remember Young Cha. It just felt a little awkward. Maybe there was a chemistry thing off or... Uh, I don't know. I really liked the despair that that Maurice, the, the tragic feeling that he had in, in this earlier scene when he, he can't remember her, you know? But uh, I guess, you know, got to tie the story up somehow. Right. Speaking on that, Chris Chat, I really enjoyed that scene when they're out in the snow and Chris and Maurice are trying to discuss Maurice's racism. I, I don't know how to put it any other way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very <laughs> obvious. Yeah. Uh, I've got the soundbite. I'll play it. It's the other. Other what? Maurice, think of concentric circles. 
the inner circle's ourselves, then the family, then the tribe, then the neighboring tribe, so on and so on. And the further you get away from the center, the more foreign things become. The people in the outer circles, they become the other. So yeah, it's this idea we've been talking about, how Maurice feels separated from his son because of these cultural differences and these uh, sort of this bias that he has, I guess, towards uh, Duquan's color. Um, but this also kind of ties in what you were talking about with the Raven myth and how, you know, this outsider could change uh, the world for the better by trying to maybe put yourself in their shoes in a way. Because I guess in this plot line, Maurice has to try to meet Duquan on his level in order to, to really recognize him as a person. Yeah, in order to humanize him. In order to break down the barriers that are erected between two different people, he needs to be able to come to terms that, number one, that this is an individual, like it is a human being. And I think that's probably the number one thing that makes people realize that the other person is whole, is that you have to realize it's like they're exactly like you other than the fact that the words coming out of them are different and that their way of handling some things are just slightly different and that's it. Otherwise it's exactly the same. So yeah, there is a great parallel between the Raven and how he brought light into the world and Maurice and what he's trying to come to terms and what Chris is telling him. And I got to hand it to Chris, his, the way he handles this conversation, you can tell this is the scene when, when uh, Maurice, you know, calls Duquan a Chinaman and Chris is like, uh, I mean, but isn't he Korean? And, and Marie says, same difference or whatever. You know, it, I'm surprised, you know, Chris has every right to come out and just berate Maurice for being such an incredible racist, you know, but he's very cool about it. And, and he offers a really touching and empathetic uh, advice to Maurice. Chris, no matter how you explain this thing, it's a nightmare. This man is my son. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like what he eats. Well, if it's any consolation, Maurice, you know, your feelings aren't instinctual. No? No, it's cultural. Well, how the hell could that be a consolation? It's learned behavior. So? So you can unlearn it. Yeah, so Chris has a really lovely message of saying that that learned behavior of Maurice's, the one in which he is dehumanizing other races, can be unlearned. Like, it's something that yeah. he can come around to. And again, it's, it's amazing writing. I think it's, it's powerful speech to give Chris. And it's so different than, than what you would expect or, or what you would maybe have an instinct for. Like, we're, we're watching the show and we're like, oh my God, Maurice is such a racist. We just want to yell at him. But uh, I really feel like Chris is connected to Maurice and, uh, you know, is trying to, to help and change him for the better. And that's, I guess, kind of what the Raven's doing, right? It's like trying to meet them on their level and, and try to change them and, and make things better for everyone. Also, something that I noticed is that the solution that Chris is proposing to Maurice is that there is a possibility for change, not what the direct solution would be. Right. He's not telling him, like, you need to be this way. He's just saying that... It's possible, like, you may, he can tell maybe Maurice wants to accept or, or just can't understand why he's so angry at Duquan. 
he wishes it were something else, but Chris is just like, well, you can have what you want. You, it's, it's all in your power. You just have to recognize it. Yeah, it's all within his own agency. And I really like that. And I think that that is, I don't know if it was specifically tailored to Maurice, like what Chris says to him, uh-huh. because that seems like something that Maurice would want. He seems, and we've talked about this before, like Maurice is a very self-made man and he wants to accomplish things through his own goal. So being presented with this opportunity of just being told that the option even exists is probably enough of a solution for him to find his way home. And so uh, pretty soon after this, Maurice is making an active effort to overcome his feelings. And he, he's actually trying to understand Duquan. I think he has, oh, he actually has a scene with Yongcha where she basically confronts him and says, look, I didn't want to come here. Like, I came here because Duquan really needed to meet his father. It's like, I, I, I didn't think it would be such a great idea to put this all on you, Maurice, but Duquan really needed it. So that's why we came. I th- thought it was a pretty effective scene and, and it definitely seems to have an effect on, on Maurice uh, because later he's sitting down and having a drink at the brick alone with Duquan. Yeah, I like that Young Cha presents the argument as it's not for me, but for our child. Yeah, and, and I guess that's... Um, meant something to Maurice. It's funny because, uh, you know, they, they have so much conversation in this episode without translation. I mean, Bong Cho is, is there to translate, but a lot of times they'll talk at each other without, uh, without waiting for a translation or, or even getting one. But in this scene, he, we see that Duquan basically can drink like a fish. Like they cheers each other. <laughs> and Duquan downs this whole thing of uh, whiskey. What, what are they drinking? Sour mash? Yeah. Uh, we learned that Duquan's an electrician. Electrical engineer. Oh, electrical engineer. And that he's strong. Challenges Maurice to an arm wrestle. He loses, but I don't know. Maybe he was letting Maurice win. I can't tell. I can't tell either. I thought that was a pleasant way of showing that they are two men. Like, not that one was a white man and one was an Asian man, uh-huh. but that they were two men because they were demonstrating it through a use of strength, which is a trait that is possessed by everybody. That's not, like, only found in one race. You can't be like, oh, only this race can do this. Like, the other race can't do that. It's like, no, this is something that universally is accepted, um, which I really liked. And, you know, when you arm wrestle someone, they're your opponent. You know, you're kind of at odds with each other. But, you know, in the end, uh, I guess Maurice wins. But in the end, you know, they're brought closer together, not further apart. Oh, that's good. I didn't realize that. I imagine what would have happened if Maurice lost the arm wrestle. Do you think he would? I don't know. Do you think? He, I think it would still be yeah, proud. You think so? I, <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. Especially at this at this moment in the in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he's really evolved, he would be really proud. And the reason why is because, you know, ultimately is the dream of every father for their child to beat them in arm wrestling. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know which one's prettier, but I, I like, I like the outcome of the scene, obviously. So to tie it all up, we have the very last plot line involving Shelly and her nostalgia for wanting to return back to, I guess, her youth. Yeah. Like, like back to the old days. Like the Catholic mask type of Christmas, because, uh, they don't really have that here in Sicily. I mean, they have the Raven. Festival? Ceremony? What What would you call it? Holiday. holiday. <laughs> Let's just blanket yeah. it with the holiday. That's a lot easier. <laughs> right. And she's missing that community that she had back home before she moved to Sicily and decided to live here. So 
she's hoping to return back to it. And poor Holling, he's trying his best. Yeah. He even asked Chris, he's like, do you know like any, like any Catholicism at all? It's like, can't you just like recite some Latin or something <laughs> for her? Uh, <laughs> and yeah, Chris brings up the point that Catholicism is, you know, I think, I think a lot of the holiness is uh, reserved for priests. You know, you can't really be like a holy person, I guess. Right. I guess maybe unless you're a saint or something like that, but that, that, <laughs> I don't know. I'm speaking uh, not from experience right now. I'm kind of just talking out of thin air because, <laughs> you know, I guess neither of us are. But Chris does bring up that argument, right? He's like, it, it's a lot of, there's a lot of power in the cloth and, and I'm not really that kind of an ordained priest. Isn't he the one that is... He's ordained, yeah. He, he did, uh, mar- uh, you know, attempt to marry them, but... Yeah, just, exactly. I mean, he just answered an ad in the back of a Rolling Stone. He's not... Mm, you know, he, he's, I think he was also kind of reluctant to, um, like do the, do the whole like confession thing with Shelly in that previous episode because he was, um, you know, he didn't think he was holy enough, I guess, to do that. <laughs> That's true. I do understand Shelly's plight. I understand that she wants to return to a simpler time. Maybe, maybe not simpler, but one in which she feels less lonely. And I mean, there's also like such a strong beauty in, in sort of ceremonies and that sort of tradition. And there's a reason why religion throughout the ages has, has always had, you know, an element of ceremony and it just sort of elevates something to be more powerful than just a normal everyday activity. This is an important, special moment. It's a holy moment, you know, that, that's kind of what the Catholic mass represents to Shelley, at, le- at least in my mind. Right. So after she's at the brick and she kind of plays around with the manger, she decides to head to the chapel. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's kind of like thinking about baby Jesus playing with a little manger as if it were like a playset. And yeah, so she goes to the chapel. She says, it's like one last thing I got to do before I go to the Raven pageant. And uh, when she gets there, there's all this Catholic imagery. I believe there's candles, right? It's mm, there's candles. a very solemn scene because there's like no one there, but it's all decorated. And out comes Holling singing Ave Maria. Is Ave Maria a traditional Catholic song? Uh, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> but Let me look it up. something we could find out. Uh, it literally translates to Hail Mary. So I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds very Catholic. And I mean, John Colum has a pretty good singing voice. I'd say, I think it's pretty great. It doesn't seem like he's lip syncing this. I mean, I could be wrong, but it seems pretty natural and he's really given it his all. Oh yeah. He's a theater actor. Yeah. I mean, he lived a life. He knows what he's doing. And yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. And you know, that's Holling's Christmas gift to Shelly. I, I think she really appreciates it. I think it really does. You know, it's the next best thing to a Catholic mass. And, you know, it's the thought that counts. You know, those gifts are the are the best kind. Yeah, it seems like it's a common gift throughout this episode. A gift that... Can't be wrapped. I like yeah, that. can't yeah. be wrapped. Like you said. You can only demonstrate it through actions. I guess you could make a rap version of Ave Maria, but I don't think that would sound very good. Sorry, bad pun. That's, that would be... <laughs> I think you go to hell for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So speaking of the theater, I'm going to backpedal a little bit so we can segue (laughs) into the next thing. I I really like the stage adaptation of Marilyn's uh, Raven story. You know, it's the exact same dialogue she has with Joel, but this time we see the whole uh, Raven pageant ceremony, festival, holiday. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever term it is. So they're acting out the entire story to yeah. it. And 
it's well done. Yeah, it's cool. For a community theater production. I was like, yeah, this is, this is, you guys are getting it. It looks really good. It. I think it looks really good. Yeah. I mean, you got like the tribal garb, but also like the part where the princess is down by the stream, there's like a backlit blue cloth that they're like holding up in the air as sort of like the water sort of streaming around. And the little boy holds up the ball of light, which is represented as this white mask that's, uh, it eventually gets illuminated and there's this guy mm-hmm. in a raven costume dancing around. Pretty good production value, I'd say. Yeah. And it ends with the raven totem being strung with Christmas lights. And I really like that. It's like a right. combination of the two holidays coming to terms with it. Oh, uh, yeah. So like I was saying before, like how Christmas trees were decorated to symbolize Christ being the light of the world. It just, it's shown both of them right there. Like the raven is the light of the world. Uh, Christ is the light of the world. And these two can live in harmony. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, it. you know, I guess you could also draw comparisons to Maurice and Duquan, you know, different cultural backgrounds, but still one and the same. Uh, so before we toss to our guest, did you catch the bonus features on this episode? I did. I thought it was a cute little gag. I understand why it was cut though. Yeah. It's fun. It's a little bit of fan service, holiday service. But uh, yeah, it doesn't really fit in with the whole plot. Uh, Joel has a patient. The name is Narsak. Uh, in the in the subtitles, it's N-A-R-S-S-A-K. Couldn't really figure out. I thought it might have been like an anagram for something else, but... Um, I can only think of sack for like the Christmas sack that Santa holds. Okay, yeah. That's all I can think of. Anyway, this patient has a rash on his hands. We learn that he works in a toy factory. He has no money. He doesn't get paid. Uh, you know, it's it's not explicitly stated, but... He's got to be an elf, right? This they, is they got to unionize, man. That's that. That's unfair <laughs> yeah. work conditions, right there, man. I understand they only work, presumably. Can't even pay to see like a doctor. One day a year? He has no health insurance. It's like <laughs> yeah, he's got nothing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So so yeah. Uh, Joel uh, ends the this deleted scene by saying, "Oh, uh, tell your boss I've been a nice boy or something like that." You know, naughty versus nice. You know, uh, yeah, we get it. Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's adorable. <laughs> and then the next scene is right before Joel comes into Ruth Ann's store asking about the raven bread. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Maurice and he's shopping with his family. Yeah, it's more of Maurice sort of uh, bringing around his uh, newfound family and not uh, having a great time. Otherwise, I thought there were scenes that could be cut. Like, I understood why. Yeah, I, I honestly don't even remember what happens in the... Uh, in the scene with Maurice and his family, it's just kind of right at the beginning of that uh, Joel Ruth Ann scene. Mm-hmm. Anyway, our guest today, that's right, we, we like to bring on a guest every episode. Usually it's someone who has never seen the show. Uh, however, for this episode, I thought it was a special one. Uh, it would be fun to, to bring someone who has seen the show before, let them relive that, you know, that experience of watching one of these great episodes. So my friend Brian, he's also a filmmaker, and it turns out he watched the show when he was young. You know, he was alive while the show was airing and was watching it. I mean, we were really small at that time, Charles, but uh, technically we were alive at the same time. But uh, No, technically I, I was Oh, you're not. younger than me. Well, you were, yeah. uh, you were alive during the run of the show, but this episode... This episode was before I was born. Oh, though. wow. Okay. Well, I have a leg up on you then for this episode. <laughs> anyway, Brian, he's going to tell us uh, what he thought revisiting this episode. Take us there, Brian. Hello, my name is Brian. I just watched an episode of Northern Exposure. It's like mid-January. For some reason, Lee sent me the Christmas episode. I don't understand why. Um, 
and uh, if it's the Christmas episode, you want to see it before Christmas actually happens. However, um, when I was a kid, I used to watch Northern Exposure. I thought the show was brilliant. To me, when I was younger, I was really into Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Northern Exposure was, to my mind, a branch of magical realist fiction. However, it was the American branch to magical realist fiction where most of it was coming from um, Latin America, Colombia, primarily. Uh, however, we had uh, Northern Exposure. And one of the things that was so different to me about the show, it being a major network show, was the writing was so fantastic. Where you have this small town in Alaska with these characters. And at the beginning of the show, they all get these setups, you know, these problems or puzzles that they have to solve. And they go through the maze of the show trying to solve these puzzles. And then we see their stories converge at the end. And, and the fictional town of Sicily, Alaska, I guess it's Alaska. I just always assumed it was Alaska. I don't even know if they say it is. But uh, the fictional town of Sicily, Alaska, uh, this Christmas show starts out where there is the Christmas myth of the Black Raven. The way that proliferates in Sicily is it's Christmas and therefore we have Black Raven decorations and we have Black Raven uh, tchotchkes and Black Raven bric-a-brac and we wind along the road of the story going to the point where we have the Black Raven Christmas pageant where we get to see the story of the Black Raven enacted out. And along this path, windy maze-like way, uh, we have, you know, our ensemble cast each sort of dealing uh, with their Christmas problems. You know, Dr. Fleischman, he's Jewish and he's, he's trying to you know, come to terms with the symbolism of the of the Christmas tree and what it means to him. And we have the astronaut who his Korean son shows up uh, with his mother and his grandson, his Korean son that he, you know, conceived in the Korean War and never knew he had, you know, shows up and uh, his problem being is that he doesn't know how to accept this son and his path along the show is him learning to accept the, this son and um we have i guess her name's o'connor or connell she's the pilot you know her christmas problem is that her family who usually sends her a ticket to come see them doesn't send a ticket this year because they decided to go to saint thomas and she's christmas lists and we have Shelly, who, if I remember correctly, she was originally the astronaut's girlfriend. And then Hollis, the bar owner, who was best friends with the astronaut, stole Shelly from the astronaut. And Shelly's problem is that she really misses the Christian mass, the Catholic mass, you know, living in Alaska. Apparently, I guess there's not a lot of Catholics in Sicily. And um, her path you know, of like longing for that Christmas mass. It culminates in Hollis, her loving older, I guess, boyfriend or husband, I'm not real sure, 
decorates the local church to be as Catholic, you know, candles, etc., and the manger and all that. And uh, he sings her, I think, Ave Maria. Yeah, Ave Maria to, you know, kind of uh, quench her longing for a Catholic mass on Christmas. So everybody gets their Christmas wish. The astronaut bonds with his son over the show. And O'Connor or Connell or whatever her name is, she, she and Dr. Fleischman's stories mix. And Dr. Fleischman, who struggles with having the tree because he's Jewish, brings the tree to O'Connor and sets it up in her front yard to give her a Merry Christmas. And it was probably one of the best Christmas shows ever. I'm not sure what season this was or... But I'm sure I saw this one when I was a kid. I don't particularly remember this episode. But um, as far as the writing, it's exceptional. Okay, so that was Brian's thoughts on the episode. And looks like he's a fan. Yeah, he said, uh, and I quote, one of the best Christmas shows ever. Hmm, that's really interesting. I'm trying to picture in my mind right now What's your what favorite? my favorite <laughs> Christmas episode is. Uh, yeah, we didn't. We thought we gave ourselves uh, enough time to think about during Jules and Joel, like our favorite Halloween episode. Halloween episode. But uh, I didn't really think about that for this episode. I think that Community had a really pleasant one. Uh, but it's uncontrollable Christmas. It's the stop oh, motion yeah. one. It's like sort of like the uh, claymation in the style of yeah. like the old uh, Frosty the Snowman or something. Yeah, that one was a really pleasant Christmas episode. You know what? I'm going to go with Rugrats again, their their Hanukkah episode. Because when I was growing up, there was never Hanukkah on TV except for the Rugrats. I thought that was so amazing that they Wait, did that. the pickles are Jewish? Oh, yeah, Stu Pickle. Mm-hmm. There's a Passover episode too. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty great. Oh, man, and Dee Dee, pick, man. I wonder what Dee Dee's maiden name is. And is it Didi's parents who are like super Polish looking and sounding? Sorry. (laughs) I, I knew they were foreign when I was a child and I was listening to, I was like, that sounds something European. That's all I know. (laughs) That's all six year old me knows. But yeah, I don't know if it's Didi's parents or if it's uh, Stu's parents, actually. Hmm. Maybe they're both uh, Jewish or or I don't know if one married into the religion. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's funny. I like how he was, he was surprised that I sent him a Christmas episode after Christmas. Uh, I, I know, I think whenever we were planning out our recording schedule for this season, I knew we had to take breaks. I was looking at the, uh, the episodes and I'm like, man, there's some good ones here. There's like the Halloween episode. There's like a Christmassy episode. We could plan it out that it would work, but I think the breaks were more important. Like, <laughs> yeah, for our insanity, yeah. that was much more important. It's a, lo- it's a longer season and, and you know, it's uh, we have some tricky schedules, but, uh, so sorry, Brian, we didn't get this to you sooner, but we're really glad to have your feedback. Yeah, that was really interesting how he compared it to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He was saying that this was the American version of it. And I never stopped to think about that. But two things on that. Number one, I never thought to compare the show to an author or oh, yeah. his body of work. I didn't. I just never stopped to yeah. realize it. And number two is that I, even if I did, I wouldn't have picked Gabriel Garcia Marquez or it wouldn't have occurred to me to pick him. Though it is a great pick because there certainly is an element of magic within his works. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Love in the Time of Cholera and I remember distinctly 
many passages of them seem like they're otherworldly, like they don't belong in this world. It's fantastical. Yeah. And I, I don't think we've ever said magical realism on this podcast before. I mean, I said it in this episode just because I, I'd heard Brian's notes, but that was exactly when, when I was first watching the show. That's exactly what I felt. I felt that sense. And, and it surprises me that, I, that that idea has kind of slipped out of my vocabulary lately, but that's totally the right thought, I think. You know, the, the right comparison. Yeah, that's a great word to describe Northern Exposure. Like, you're grounded, but the ground that you are walking on is not natural. It's magic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brian can only sing the praises. Uh, you know, the, the writing on the show is so great. And I mean, yeah, I, I really do feel like, you know, of course I love this show, but I really do feel like it has some pretty strong writing, especially in the jokes and the dialogue you know, maybe it's because the show is kind of remembered or fits into, you know, the realm of sitcom, but it's really not. It, you know, obviously it's winning awards for drama. It's it's more elevated than just like a normal sitcom. Yeah, I would have to say as a newcomer that it certainly feels like the environment that it's trying to depict. Yeah. Like it's aloof at times. It feels like the Alaskan wilderness in that you don't even quite understand what the Alaskan wilderness is. You have a preconceived idea in your brain, but it's always surprising. It's probably (laughs) surprising. Yeah. You would have no actual idea until you've been there. And that's kind of what the show is to me right now. Now, as for their first Christmas episode, I would have to say that this is a very well done Christmas episode. Yeah. Even just in general. Yeah. Just the overall television overall, pretty good. Uh, A couple of things that Brian remembered about the show. It is set in Alaska. They don't mention Alaska in this episode. I, I think they say Sicily, but they don't say Alaska. I, th- I think it happens more often than we than we realize. But you know, people watching the show for the first time sometimes are confused uh, where it's set. You know, somewhere maybe in the Pacific Northwest, but uh, yeah, it's all the way up in Alaska. Brian also calls hauling Hollis, which is a comment for for a lot of our guests. It's a very strange name. He, he does, however, remember correctly that Shelly was originally with Maurice. However, she wasn't stolen by Hauling. There's like, there's an episode where they kind of go into that backstory and Shelly, her side of the story is that she chose Hauling. Right. Yeah. He didn't just steal her outright from Maurice. And I agree. Hauling is a strange name. Even to this day, I still confuse his name. Like, I'm just like, it's Hollis. Yeah. It's Holiday. Wow. And you know, there's something that Brian brings up that I actually didn't, I don't know why I didn't recognize this, but you know, the scene where Hauling is singing Ave Maria to Shelley. For some reason, when I was watching that scene, I didn't put together that Hauling set up all the decorations. I just thought it was like that. <laughs> I didn't really. Oh, really? Course, yeah. I don't know why. I mean, of course that makes sense. Maybe I was just kind of out of it when I was watching that part <laughs> of the episode. Um, so yeah, I was like, oh yeah, that is, that is right. You know, of course, Hauling set it up. It's not, he doesn't say it. He's not like, Shelly, I did this all for you, you know, but I mean, it's well, It's like the whole, it's a whole Christmas tree thing again. It's like Joel didn't just bring a Christmas tree in front of Maggie's house <laughs> yeah, and start decorating it. Exactly. If it's not shown on screen, I'm really confused, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I need you to hold my hand and yeah. show me every single action. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that just about does it for Soulmates. Uh, Merry late Christmas to you and happy Raven holiday, Charles. 
That's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Merry Christmas to you too, Lee. And I'm a gr- happy Raven holiday. Happy- yeah, that's what we're what going did you with. Say? That's what we're going okay. with. <laughs> so the next episode is number 11 of season three. It's called Dateline Sicily. That's Dateline colon Sicily. Hmm. Is that named after the television series about journalism? Yes. I think it's referring to Dateline NBC. So uh, I guess that we can, I guess we can expect some, some bit of journalism in this episode perhaps. Oh, so this is the episode that, you know, there, there is a break in programming after soulmates. They took a little Christmas holiday and this uh, next episode comes after that break in January, 1992. So this will be like, not really like the premiere, but you know, the return to Sicily after, after a little holiday. Mm. All right, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right, Lee, next week. Northern Over Exposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Brian for being our guest analyst. If you want to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.